Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. We're in the midst of a sermon series moving through the material from the uh, epistle of James, and we're now very deeply in chapter one, and uh, uh, the series is entitled Integration. It's trying to show how authentic faith connects with real life, and uh, every sermon from the book of James uh, ought to begin with some obscure quote from a Godfather film, and today is that day. Um, a Godfather 3, which is a terrible film and nobody should ever see it, but it has a good scene in it. The first two are marvelous, the third one stinks, but uh, there's a beautiful scene in which the mafia don, the Godfather, Michael Corleone, speaks with a cardinal who is connected to the Vatican Bank. They are standing in a monastery garden near a beautiful fountain, and the cardinal takes a rock from under the water and says, Michael, look at this stone. It has been lying in the water for a very long time, but the water has not penetrated it. And then he beats the stone against the side of the fountain, cracks it open, and showing Michael the halves, he says, look, perfectly dry, just like the men and women of Europe. He said for hundreds of years they've been surrounded by Christianity, and yet Christ has not penetrated Christ does not live within many of them. It's a moving scene. And I think the good cardinal must have been acquainted with James chapter 1. Because James 1 is all about the deep effect of the word. The deep effect that doesn't only enter the ear canals, but is transferred through the hands. So today, from James chapter 1, I want to speak about the action of the word, the liberation of the word, and the expression of the word. Action, liberation, expression. But we'll begin with action because that's where James begins. He connects the word that God has for every one of us with behavioral alteration. And the context is important because James has been talking about the word for some time. If you've uh, if you missed it, go back and listen to a Dr. Shepson's sermon from last week where he gives the context. In verse 21, the verse that immediately precedes our passage, uh, James is telling us to make sure we receive, grapple with the implanted word that God has given the word about his son to you. He's implanted it in your heart. God places this foreign truth, this foreign insight deep in your spiritual chest cavity And he wants that word that's been implanted to have its full, its robust effect. And that's where our text picks up. James wants that implanted word to go viral, if you will, to be entirely pervasive. So he writes in uh, verse 22, please follow along, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Let me talk about action for a moment. Uh, James' epistle is rich in the language of action. James' epistle, in a way, is the opposite 
of every Downton Abbey episode, right? Where absolutely nothing occurs week after week. It's so deftly British. Um, consider James more the die-hard four of the New Testament, in which is there's endless action. In James' epistle, he gives us 50 different exhortations, 50 different commands to do various things. James is hyperactive, and he wants uh, hyperactivity because he believes that truth, when the word of truth is received, it has an all-pervasive effect. That truth is not something you receive in your life and then sequester it, sort of in your hearing only, living only in your ear canals, some interesting bits of trivia to bandy about within your own skull. James seems to think that that truth, if it's truly true, would have an effect in every area of life. You may know the, the famous philosopher Immanuel Kant, who in his categorical imperative said that if something is true, completely true, it must be true in every circumstance to some degree, and therefore must have a rippling effect in every circumstance. And so James is saying, when you consider the truth of Christ, it is universally true, not just particularly true for you. And therefore it will have all sorts of social and internal ramifications. And so James is an integrationist. He doesn't just want you to hear. He wants you to function in light of what you hear. Because his understanding is if grace is real, and it is, it ought to cause us to be gracious. If wealth often corrupts, that knowledge ought to cause us to be generous. If anger is very often evil or gives rise to evil, it would be best to pursue peace. Theology and action are connected in James' mind. By the way, James did not invent this bond between hearing and doing. We read of it from Jesus and from the Old Testament. Jesus says this at the end of his magnum opus, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, which is rich in the language of alteration of behavior. Uh, Jesus says this, these are his closing words for the Sermon on the Mount. Everyone who, what, hears my words and does them is like a man, a wise man who built his house on the rock. Not just who hears my words, but hears them and implements them. That person has demonstrated wisdom. But Jesus didn't even make this up. It goes back to the Old Testament, to the Shema, the central commandment of Old Testament Judaism. Every religious Jew and even every irreligious Jew would have known this commandment in the first century. It comes from Deuteronomy. Hear, that is not over here, Yins, but like hear with your ears. Um, hear, O Israel, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and then what? You shall love. So hear and love. Listening ought to lead to love. Well, this is the understanding of theology in the Old Testament and in the New, that theology ha has, has a viral effect to get inside your emotions, to get inside your thoughts, to get inside your psychology, to get inside your hands and your mouth and to function in the world. So this is why James says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. By the way, everybody in this room wants this to be the case for all of your interpersonal relationships. You want the truth that you speak to somebody to be effective and to matter and you get very frustrated, I get very frustrated when, this, when truth is not acted upon because some of you have an aging parent who has diabetes and they will not take their insulin. 
and you want the data you give them, here's what insulin is for, here's how many times a day you need to take it, here's the time in which, you know, before your meal you need to take it, like, please, please take this. You want that to be effective so that they actually keep living, right? Uh, the same thing uh, could be said of a child who's sort of endlessly putting off doing any of their homework until like 5 a.m. the next morning. You'd be like, no, no, no. You need to do your homework at night because at 5 a.m. in the morning you become a monster and you ruin our family. No, I'm kidding. But you, you know, you, it's very hard. It's very hard to you know, express love to you that early when you're that cranky. Or you have a spouse, let's say a spouse who is endlessly insecure and is constantly requiring your verbal buttressing. And no matter how many times you tell them that you love them, that you adore them, that you'll never leave them, they can't take it in. They hear it, but they don't receive it. So you know what it's like whenever you express truth, but that truth is not acted upon. Well, this is James. He says, I want you to be integrated. When you hear something that matters, it ought to matter fully. Yeah? Well, that leads to point two, the liberation of the word. James then illustrates this hearing-doing point in a very memorable way, using the image of a mirror. This is verse 23. Please follow along. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Here's the image, right? Two men staring into the same mirror. And James calls that mirror the perfect law, the law of liberty. That's an extremely deep and complex phrase. So what does it mean? First, what does James mean by the word law? Here's what's tricky about the epistle of James. In now the later part of the first chapter and certainly in the second chapter, James defines his terms differently than other New Testament authors, namely Paul. So when Paul speaks about the law, works, faith, justification, he often means something very different than when James speaks about those same topics. Paul and James defined the word law differently. For the apostle Paul, the law is a synecdoche, or means the same thing, as the Sinai covenant that was given to Moses and to Israel on Mount Sinai. That Sinai covenant was a conditional covenant that blessed people who obeyed it, cursed people who didn't. And so if you sinned, you were going to get walloped. And if the nation as a whole sinned, it would get expelled from the Holy Land and sent into exile. It was a punitive arrangement. It was not a gracious arrangement. It was based on works. If you don't believe me, read it or read the book of Galatians. It's crystal clear. The, the problem was that Israel failed time after time at keeping that same law. And so the Apostle Paul concludes in the New Testament, that law, the Sinai Covenant, became the strength of sin. It made sin worse. So Paul concludes, because of Christ and the effective labors of Christ, we are no longer under the Sinai Covenant in any way. We are freed from that law, that punitive arrangement that wallops you when you're disobedient. Very, very good that we are not under that law. James, though, when he uses the word law, defines his term very differently. James seems to use the word law very elastically to refer to basically God's moral will within creation. 
that moral will uh, that is um, ineffably connected to human experience because it's part of God's nature and our nature because we are image bearers of God. And so God's moral will is reflected in the Old Testament uh, commandments, right, about not killing, not lying, not stealing, not taking the names of the Lord uh, in vain. Reflected in those teachings, reflected also in the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament. This is why James over and over and over again makes allusions to Old Testament, quote, Old Testament moral texts and Jesus' own teaching. So I think the law in James refers to God's basic moral will, God's good order sewn into the very fabric of creation. It is how humans were intended to function. And that is true in Old and New Testaments. And notice he calls this law, God's basic moral will, the perfect law. Perfect, meaning it will not damage you. There are laws out there that will damage you. Uh, there, there are understandings and structural understandings of the world that if you adopt them, believe in them, and live into them, they will damage you. But this is one sphere, one way of looking at life and approaching life that will not damage you because it's perfect. So he calls it, the perfect law or the law of liberty. Now, how exactly does that law liberate? How does it liberate us to know how we ought to function within the world? Um, well, I think the hint of how it liberates is found in the mirror imagery. How does a mirror liberate us? Why does he connect the law to a mirror? Well, how does it liberate us? Here's how. A good mirror doesn't lie. A good mirror doesn't lie. It reflects the truth, the beautiful truth and the not-so-beautiful truth, right? Mirrors show us what we want to see and what we don't want to see. I have a, and maybe it's just true on all phones now, but I have now a very new Pixel 6a, which I love. And there's an option on my new phone that was not true of my nine-year-old phone that I just got rid of, and it's this. You can take a picture of yourself and you can do this thing with your face to make it prettier. Like you just hit a button and I look better. I look younger. I look more vital. I regrow my hair and I have a part down the middle. It's just so phenomenal. I'm very excited to explore this new option in my life. Um, but a good mirror does not do this. There is no button I can push that says, if I could turn back time, nothing. I can't. That was a very good share impression. So. Um, no, a good mirror will show your green eyes and also your fine lines, your yellowing teeth, your fatiguing face, your slumping shoulders, as well as your radiance, right? All of it. The, uh, the perfect law, the law of liberty is, is liberating because it is the only thing that doesn't lie to you. The law reveals where we are thriving and where we are failing. It offers us truth. And to quote Jesus Christ, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. Even if it's a hard truth, it'll set you free. Um, this is, by the way, an interesting difference between these two men who stare at the same mirror, right? One looks and then leaves. But the other one does something different. One looks and lingers. It says he perseveres. He stays in front of the mirror of the law of God and keeps staring at it and staring at it and staring at it and thereby he sees himself. The man who walks away from the mirror forgets who he is. There's an amnesia that develops regarding self-awareness. But the one who stares at the word of God again and again and again 
relentlessly allowing it to define him, he begins to see himself in light of the truth of that liberating law. The one who lingers becomes free. By the way, lingering with truth is very hard. It is our nature to hide from truth. This goes all the way back to the garden where God has to ask Adam and Eve this this very invasive question, where are you? Because they hid, they disguised themselves in the vegetation of the garden, right? This is what we do, we dissemble. But God is inviting us to stand in front of truth so that we can become our full selves. You know, I I meet addicts uh, sometimes who are in 12-step groups, and they always uh, said that the two hardest steps were the first step And I believe it's the fifth step. The first step is that you admitted that you were powerless, that you couldn't control your life anymore. That required a death of ego. Because before they were always masking it. You know, I can handle this. I got it. Like I'm, I know, you know, I I could stop at any time. I just don't want to. But I got this, right? Well, they, they didn't have it. It had them. And later, there's another step that says that you make a fearless moral inventory of all of your faults and you confess it to somebody else. And every addict I've spoken to has done the 12 steps that that was the most freeing enterprise of my life, that I was able to finally say what was wrong with me and stop hiding, yeah? By the way, we offer that in this church. If you ever wanna do that, we have people who will listen to you and hear you out and pray that you would receive in a very deep way God's clemency and uh, recalibration, yeah? So they're standing in front of the mirror. The one who stands and stays ends up becoming free. The law pushes us. This is what Luther would say. The law pushes you to honesty, humility, and repentance. It breaks you down to the place of reality. By the way, that's why we're here today. We're not here just for some social engagement. We are here to stare into one mirror, the mirror of the word of God. Every other mirror out there is a funhouse mirror. It distorts our reflections, making us look either bigger and better than we are or more grievous than we are. But we are not here to look into other mirrors. You could do that. You could look into the mirror of somebody sitting three rows away from you and says, well, I know their backstory, and at least I'm not as, you know, uh, horrific as they are. I haven't made the same errors of judgment. I never had a one-night stand. I mean, I wanted to, but I never had a one-night stand, or I never had a pill addiction, or I, you know, I I, I don't starve myself. I'm better off than they are. You could do that, but that's a funhouse mirror. Or you could um, say, well, at least I'm doing better than my mother did, or my father did. At least I'm better off than my uh, my sibling is. Um, Or, you know, um, you could compare yourself to the, uh, you know, to what the vapid, putrid, right-wing, left-wing media says you ought to be, right, and compare yourself to that. Or you could ditch all of those mirrors and look into the perfect mirror, the, the moral realities of God and thereby become free, because it, unlike all other mirrors, won't lie to you. And so that's something about the action of the word, the liberation of the word, and lastly, the expression of the word. This is verse 27, going to skip a bit to verse 27, where James writes, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, and then he gives the expression, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That's the expression of religion. Just as a proviso, this verse does not offer us the central content of Christian theology. The central content of Christian theology is Christ and him crucified and risen. But it does summarize the outward expression of Christianity. 
after that internal thing is, is discovered, how we ought to function in the world in light of it, the outward expression of it. Now, by the way, religious expression, that is the externalizing of religious interest, is not always positive. People sometimes express religion in very dangerous, damaging ways. People have abused in the name of God. People have ushered in crusades in the name of God. People have burned witches in the name of God. People create jihads in the name of God, right? That's expressive religion, and we would condemn that. But this is why James tells us that true religion, healthy religion, has a particular feel and a particular shape, and this is it. There's an external part and an internal part. The external is that you would care for people who are destitute. He says orphans and widows. We have our own contemporary expressions of those, those categories. But that is those who have no safety net, those who are completely discarded and forgotten, those who are um, often bereft of help, who are in a place of weakness. But then he talks about an inward component or inward expression, that you would be unstained from the world, that you yourself would not be completely collapsing in the dark enterprise of sin. By the way, um, some Christians prefer the first part and some the second part. Some Christians prefer the social action part, that we should be out there for people that are downtrodden, while others are saying, no, what we really need to do is protect ourselves from the evil influences of the world, which are taking, uh, taking us down. Bible religion includes both. Bible religion includes both sanctity and justice, the healing of the soul and the care for the stranger. Um, but that is how religion is expressed within the world. And so that's what James is saying in this piece of scripture. There's the action of the word, the liberation of the word, and the expression of the word. So James is here connecting the ear canals with the hands, right? The hearing and the doing. And friends, when we forsake this bond between hearing and doing, we are in grave danger of becoming hypocrites who hear one thing, claim to believe one thing, but never act on the one thing. In the long run, that kind of hypocrisy doesn't only damage us, it damages others, it damages people outside the church, and it besmirches the face of Christ, at least from their perspective. By the way, it dissuaded uh, Sigmund Freud from ever considering Christianity. You may know that uh, he lived into a portion of World War II, and he knew all about the Holocaust, and he saw all these Germans, Nazi sympathizers or Nazis themselves, who were attending Catholic or Lutheran churches Sunday after Sunday, beating their chests in liturgy, saying, Mia culpa, Mia culpa, Mia maxima culpa. I'm, I'm a horrible cesspool. I'm a sewer. I'm a sewer. I'm a terrible, rotten sewer. And then going out and executing Jews the next day. And Freud concluded, well, obviously there's something fraudulent between the confession and the practice because there's no integration between the two of them. And therefore, there is no source behind it all. Brendan Manning puts it this way quite memorably. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. That's the danger of disassociating hearing with doing. So let me now offer, friends, this concluding remark and land this for us a little bit. I find this text, at least for me personally, to be inordinately stressful. Because how many times have I heard sermons about the need for forgiveness and letting people off the hook? How many times have we heard sermons about caring for the poor 
being better with our children, being men and women of integrity, being people defined by prayer, needing to treat a husband or a wife differently than we do, we hear it time after time, and we don't change. We just do what's familiar, and we keep on keeping on until 20 years go by and lots of damage has been done. So my question for us to consider is how? Not what should we do. That's important to consider. The law, the moral weight of the law is always important to consider because it reminds us of who we were created to be. But if all I did today was stand up in front of you and tell you that you should be different, that you should change, that doesn't actually give you the enabling word to change. It actually just in the long run defeats you more and more. So how? How do people become doers and not just hearers? Where is effort derived from? How do we have the energy, the pluck, the courage, the zeal to try to change? I think the answer is that we linger in front of the mirror. We become people who linger in front of the mirror. To illustrate the point, let me now return to sacred territory, the Godfather Part 3. After the cardinal cracks open the stone to show how Christ hadn't saturated the hearts of many of his contemporaries, he noticed that Michael Corleone, the hardened godfather, was shaken. The cardinal then did something rather daring. He asked the vulnerable mafia don if he wanted to offer a confession. Michael responded, what's the use of confessing if I don't repent? The cardinal smiled and said, Michael, I hear that you're a very practical man. What have you got to lose? And after some awkward fits and starts, Michael tearfully expressed to the cardinal that he ordered the deaths of dozens of people, including his very own brother. And at that point, Michael broke down and began to sob loudly and sloppily. In the midst of that meltdown, the cardinal looks at him with truth and compassion and says to Michael, your sins are terrible. And it is just that you suffer. Your life could be redeemed, but I know you don't believe that right now. You feel that you cannot change. So, I declare the absolution of all your sins. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And at that point, Michael lifts up his head. And that is the moment of his reclamation. That is the moment that he starts to become a different man. What did that cardinal give to Michael Corleone? He gave him the law of liberty. He helped Michael see his sin for what it was, but he didn't stop there. He also helped Michael see the Redeemer who loves us all the way all the way to the cross. Because this cardinal understood that true obedience comes from being loved into obedience. So my invitation 
is to linger at the mirror, to stare at the law of liberty. That is, to stick close to the word of God and to its veritable center, the son of compassion, the one who gave his life for all of us, to linger in front of that mirror. Linger and see that you are a person made, fashioned in the image of God, and that you reflect his love and justice and worth and dignity, that that is your current quest to reflect all of those things that are true of the divine nature. And linger and see that you are also a person who is morally fractured and that your hearing and doing is desperately out of joint. And linger and see that God has quickened you to the degree that you are sorrowful over the fact that there is a disintegration between hearing and doing and that you long for something better. And linger and see that Jesus himself, the only obedient man, was toppled for you, destroyed for you, and risen for you. And that because of that, you have more than certainty that you are loved in the midst of your interior devastation. And lastly, linger and see that the Holy Spirit thuds around in your soul. And no matter what comes your way, and no matter what mistakes you make, wherever you've been, wherever you're going, the God of Jesus Christ, the God who invested himself in his own son, who came to you at your worst, that same God will never, ever, ever, ever give up on you. Amen. They took your life. They could not take your